Welcome to Breaking Free Podcast, your recovery, your way. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Liv. You're in the right place if you want to explore what it means to be in recovery, to challenge the things that keep us small, and to learn how to thrive independently. Together, we are breaking free. Just a quick reminder that while I'm a nurse and a coach, and Liv is a coach, recovery advocate, and a writer, we are not doctors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to, please, please see a doctor. The Alana Club of Portland is proud to sponsor the Breaking Free podcast. Your recovery, your way, is at the heart of our approach to recovery support services. Unity Recovery, an inclusive recovery community organization serving all of Philadelphia, is proud to support the Breaking Free podcast. Recovery is possible. Find your path to break free. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about sex in recovery with Jennifer Matiza. Liv, I'd love to hear how you got to know Jennifer and her work. I love Jennifer. Um, I became, like many of the people that I know in recovery, I met her on Facebook and I interviewed her on my website and um, because I, I at that time was focusing on the physical aspects of recovery and holistic recovery and she was talking about sex and recovery and um, has written several books on sex and the physical aspects of recovery and she has a lot to say about it and she's amazing. So that's how I heard about her. Awesome. Can't wait to dive in. I'm so excited to have you on today, Jennifer. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for prioritizing the subject in your lineup. We're really excited <laughs> to talk about sex. <laughs> Nobody talks about, about sex. it. <laughs> I talk about it. Yeah, I know you do. That's why we I'm have here you. to talk to you about it. <laughs> um, so do you want to explain to us um, what you think the main obstacles are that people come up against when approaching sexual intimacy for the first time in recovery? Like, you know, like our unexplored um, perceptions of pleasure, for example. Right. So um, the most, in, in writing my book, Sex and Recovery, um, I interviewed three dozen ordinary folks in recovery from substance problems, substance use problems. And um, the thing that I heard most often was that they were just terrified to have sex without drinking because they, they would find it hard to relax um, into taking their clothes off with another human being without having something mm-hmm. to change their consciousness. Mm-hmm. So part of this, I think, is being able to accept our bodies as they are, because a lot of the stress that people and especially women experience when we take our clothes off is body rejection. Um, and men experience this too, but I think it's super prevalent among women. And drinking or taking drugs help can help that momentarily by clouding our awareness. So we, we drop a veil in front of, like it's almost like putting something in front of our eyes or like putting on dark glasses or something so that we can't see ourselves. But in the long run, it makes it worse because we have to come back to awareness at some point. Mm. And it feels worse when we do, not to mention that drinking actually makes us gain weight. So, you know, if, if we're experiencing already body rejection and we add to that, um, it changes the way our bodies, our bodies actually metabolize food and everything else, not, not only um, alcohol. So I just think, you know, I mean, I talked to so many people um, who had never had sex without 
taking a drink or a drug any anywhere from like in their mid to late 20s so they'd been spending six to eight years without without ever having had sober sex to people in their 40s who said they had never had sex without taking a drink because they found it difficult to actually have contact like physical contact with someone else sexual contact Mm -hmm. um without changing their consciousness and i even heard like while i was talking about this book to other people who the so-called normies of the world the people who (laughs) didn't have substance use disorders um they would say well i always have a drink before i have sex so i just think it's really prevalent in the culture and i have a lot of thoughts about that i mean i think a lot of people start drinking and using to access during adolescence because we just don't talk about sexuality in the culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I too have heard from so many people that they really struggled to, um, you know, be intimate with somebody after getting sober because they, like you said, had never done it before or um, it had become such a part of their kind of routine leading up to sex that they really were super uncomfortable with the idea of doing it without, it's kind of one of those things, like I've never danced without, you know, drinking, or I've never, mm-hmm. I don't go to parties without drinking, right. and I don't have sex without right. drinking, and right. um, and I love that you talk about that piece of, you know, not feeling comfortable with our bodies, and that fear of rejection as, as well. So in, the, in our podcast, we like to talk about breaking free from these, you know, the things that keep us small, and that's one thing that potentially could keep us from really having uh, the life that we want to have or having as much pleasure as we could have in that in that way and really connecting with others or connecting with ourselves. And so what would be some of the solutions, the breaking free type solutions that you um, have found in all of your work? Um, <clears throat> um, well, okay, so the book that I've written is part of like the self-help movement, right? I mean, the self-help mm-hmm. industry, because it's put out by Hazelden and Hazelden is definitely a self-help and in- imprint. But in writing the two books that I've written for Hazelden, I've tried to to create a kind of non-traditional approach. So I don't really give tips um, or solutions. But what I do is I, I interview ordinary folks and get their stories of what, what has worked for them and sometimes what has not worked for them. Mm-hmm. And also scientific researchers and other experts to give people solid science plus anecdotal information to help people create their own solutions. But all that said kind of three things come to mind. So first of all, if you drink because you are uncomfortable with your body or you reject your body, you have to you have to do something to gain comfort with your own body. So I'm talking here about self-pleasuring, which is which I have no problem talking about, but a lot of people are like, oh, masturbation, you know, like, um, it's really important. Be- and, that, and that is because, you know, when children are two years old or one year old even, and they start exploring their bodies with their hands, their parents bat their hands away and say, don't do that. Mm-hmm. We don't do that. That's bad. That's sinful. That's whatever. But it's actually what our bodies are made to do. So a lot of people have to learn after they get sober how to pleasure themselves and not just with toys, although I'm a huge fan of toys, I love toys, um, but also, but like also with your own hands uh, and mm. and feeling your own skin against your own skin. So that's that's what makes people super uncomfortable to begin with and makes them want to take a drink is the skin to skin thing. Mm. And if we can experiment with that with ourselves, then we find out about our own bodies. Um, I don't know. I, I have two other suggestions, but do you want to talk about that first? Sure. Yeah. So okay. I personally, I'm going to totally confess here. Uh, so I personally didn't get comfortable without with masturbating without using toys until like 
very recently and I've been sober for actually today we're, oh, we're recording yeah. today it's my oh. 21 um year oh, anniversary <laughs> so um you know so it took a really long time and um you know fortunately I have a partner and we have you know a good sex life and I'm able to enjoy myself but you know that whole like by yourself intimacy um took a lot longer for me than you know just kind of jumping in the sheets with somebody else yeah <laughs> yeah how about you, Liv? Do you want to that's, talk about this part? Yeah, I mean, that's... That, oh, my God, the English part of me is dying inside. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I, It's really interesting. I've not had, um, until the last couple of years, like, the... the the last relationship I had has, has been the most difficult to let go of because it was the most sexually intimate, and I have never felt so accepted in my body even though I still have um you know I've put on some weight in the last year and I feel uncomfortable in my body right now um but that relationship helped me to look at my body in a different way and um I experienced more pleasure with a partner that I've never done before mm. um but in terms of self-pleasure I actually don't own any toys I, I, so that, oh my goodness. But actually, my, you know, my therapist suggested that I go to Shebop, which is a, a, a shop in Portland. We should go. Yeah, it's on a better bed. Yeah. Oh, let's give a bell no. for Shebop. Yeah, Shebop. It's like a feminine, um, like a body positive, she, um, feminine focused. They even do sex classes. Oh. They'll do sex classes on, you know, BDSM, anal, that's all super, sort of that's like... That's super great. I wish I could take one of those because it's Why do you come to Portland? Oh, come I love us. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll go to Shebop. It, it's hard to find out about things like BDSM. I know some people who practice it, and I plan on having conversations with them soon. But listening to you guys talk about how long it has taken you to approach your own bodies, I'm oh, reminded yeah. that as women especially, I found this to be true for myself and for other women that I talk to, we are brought up to think that other people have rights to mm. like to touch our bodies, but yes. we don't have the right to touch our own bodies. So that when we move into adolescence, it's normal for us to think, well, unless you grew up the way I grew up, which was severely Catholic, but it's normal to think of a boy or someone else touching your body, but, but yourself touching your own body is off limits. Yeah. So it's very, yeah. very deep. It goes way back. Yeah, it really, yeah, it really does. And, you know, in my sexual history, I, I mean, I came out as bisexual when I was in my late 20s. And actually what was interesting is that was when my substance use disorder got worse because I had to be more drunk to really explore what I've wanted to explore my whole life. Mm, yeah. So that was really interesting. So, yeah, and I, I completely agree that we are brought up to think that we need somebody else to give us pleasure like that's not something that we can give to ourselves mm. right yeah this is interesting um you know i love that you talk about what Liv just touched on in your book the idea that we need to you know that that a lot of us drink or use at times to be able to explore our sexuality i love that piece um, but i want to also go back to what you were saying previous to that 
the a lot of the work that I do in intuitive eating is about body attunement and really being connected to our body and rejecting all of the shoulds mm-hmm. and instead allowing our bodies to guide us. And I think that that's, that is uh, a commonality between the work that you've done and in, in the intuitive eating work that I do because um, having that agency over our bodies and being empowered to listen to our body, be comfortable with our body. Um, and for me, a lot of the work I do with body attunement is around like just, you know, touching. In fact, I would say that, you know, kind of doing the self-exploration more has been because I wanted to be more in touch and more in tune with my body um, because of my experience with intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody really talks about how important it is to give ourselves that permission or give ourselves that um, or empower ourselves in that way. That's great. That's awesome. I think that's true recovery. That's truly breaking free when you recover your own intuition. I wanted to go back to a point that you made about, um, you know, about body image and about um, you touched briefly on um, on how we're with we talk about our bodies and, you know, the self rejection, but also like in the broader context of body rejection, you know, we've talked in this podcast about the diet industry and how it creates so much shame because we're constantly told our body is not the right size or shape. Mm. And it only follows that that makes us even more insecure, insecure sexually um, because we're undressing that body. That's right. Hmm. Um, so, so I was going to say like one of the, one of the ideas that came up for me before when you asked the initial question was to develop a a mindfulness practice. So, Hmm. um, it doesn't have to be meditation though. I have personally found that practicing a body scan meditation can be a super helpful way to become mindful of my body and mindful of the fact that I live inside this house called my body. Mm -hmm. You know, like I live here every day. This is where I live. And and my body, I teach this in my therapy groups too, like my, our bodies only live in the present. They, they, they can't live in the past. They can't live in the future. They live right here and right now. And there's more and more there, these days you see research coming out about how mindfulness practice can be a great way to achieve sexual satisfaction. And I think that's because um, the key to pleasure is to be right inside the moment. So if you're going after an orgasm, it's like chasing a mouse across the kitchen floor, right? It's darting everywhere and you'll never catch it. <laughs> but if you can, if you can be right, I, I, guess, I think That's that you brilliant. might have experience. But if you can be right inside the moment, you can let go of expectations and you can learn to be super aware of the feelings you and your partner or your partners are, are experiencing. And there's a certain amount of surrender that happens when we become, we become mindful. So what's happening is maybe not what we had scripted but it's what it is. So we might not have an orgasm. We might have more than one orgasm. We might have different kinds of orgasms. I've personally stopped counting the number of orgasms I have or judging them. Was that like a really deep one or was it a kind of surface one or whatever? I just have the pleasure that I have and I try to let go of all those expectations. And I never, ever, ever used to have sex like that before. I I quit using drugs. Yeah. I love that you talk about this topic. And I I love your inquisitive mind too. You know, the way that you explore this and speak about it. Um, What uh, what I wanted to touch on next was, um, you know, let's say that you have been implementing some mindfulness practices. um, You are becoming more in tune with your body. 
What if some of these issues persist, you know, and, and that might be indicative of some deeper issues like sexual trauma, for example? So I'm not a sex re researcher and I'm not yet a sex therapist, although I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a sex therapist. Do yeah, it. no, I just, I just earned my Master of Social Work. So, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I can't answer this question the way one of those practitioners might mm -hmm. answer it, but I would say that if you're experiencing persistent reluctance or kind of resistance to being inside your body and cultivating awareness of it, like if you're inside a body scan and you just can't be there, um, that might be there might be some other kind of process going on that you might need help with. Or on the other hand, if you're drawn toward compulsive sexual practices, like you want to go have sex with a lot of different partners, but you're not having as much pleasure or intimacy and those things are what you really want, mm -hmm. then there's something else going on. So I talk to, I talk to women who, well, there's, first of all, there's a big movement among women these days, like young women, um, that such that they think that, if they go out and have sex with lots of people, that's taking back their sexuality. That's taking control of their sexuality. I think that when people, when some women get sober, they think that that one way to heal their sexuality is to either go have sex with lots of people, compulsive sexuality, or um, to reenact a kind of um, a kind of abusive situation. So they may become drawn to people who have abuse, abuse them in ways that they were abused before. Mm -hmm. And so if you're having, if during sexual contact, you're having flashbacks or intrusive thoughts or memories, then it would be really good to look for a therapist who's skilled in helping people talk about their sexuality and their sexual trauma. Um, but it's important not to force anything or, and to go slowly. So you, you can't make things heal, but you can open things up and see what you find. Mm -hmm. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the solution too. Um, I think that's wonderful. Um, because, you know, because addiction in itself, irrelevant of any childhood trauma is quite traumatic, you know, yeah, and some of the things right. that, you know, the things that I did towards the end, um, that involved, uh, using sex as a means of getting drugs and alcohol, um, right. were things that I would have never normally done. Um, in my right mind so it was pretty um traumatizing for me uh and i think this you know as a topic that we don't talk about so often I, I think when we address addiction and you know in some mutual aid programs like you know the 12 steps are not going to solve everything for example so like this area of trauma it's really important that if these things are coming up that we can address them at a deeper level if that's necessary that's right yeah I don't know if you got this far in my book, but toward the end, there's a, um, in the last half, there's a story of a trans woman who used to um, work Santa Monica Boulevard in LA. Mm -hmm. And she, she had to do lots of drugs and alcohol in order for her to get into the cars and do what she used to do. And when she got sober, the memories of that were just really intrusive and she mm -hmm. had to get help um, with all that stuff. Plus she was trans, right? So she had all this self-acceptance work to do. Um, she's a super healthy person and um, I was really privileged to talk to her. That's wonderful. Um, so in your book, um, we um, read the story about Amy, who, um, this is a really good example, another example. Uh, she was sexually molested as a child and she shared that information with a sponsor. Um, what 
what kind of guidelines or advice would you give to someone in recovery about sharing those particular s- stories of sexual trauma? Um, and and I'm particularly interested too in your position on step ten in the the making of amends in that situation. So I didn't. I'm not. I wasn't sure about um, what you meant about making of amends, like making amends to oneself, making amends. I, I wasn't sure, but I have a long, I have a pretty long answer <laughs> yeah. to this question, Liv. Um, I yes. can just, I can just start to answer it and then we can sure. talk about step 10. That sounds great. So I think this is like a super great question because nobody ever talks about how to cultivate a relationship with a sponsor. The attitude, like I've always seen enacted in the rooms, the so-called rooms is to mm-hmm. plunge right in and just reveal everything to this person who you may not know at all. Right. <clears throat> um, and so some self-disclosure here. I did that with um, two different people in early recovery. I detoxed off fentanyl in -hmm. 2008, and I I went to a a 12-step fellowship, and I found a person whose story was very similar to mine through networking with other people. And this person became my sponsor over the phone. I'd never seen her. Um, I'd never met her in person. Um, She listened to my, uh, over the period of the next two or three months, she listened Mm -hmm. to my first nine steps and helped me work them. And then she revealed that she'd been using opioid cough syrup and was going to go to rehab. So there there I was three months into recovery, and I was pretty physically and emotionally unwell. I was pretty fragile, emotionally fragile. And I'd confided all of this personal stuff to a woman who basically disappeared. And also nobody ever talks about what to do when your sponsor goes to rehab, Mm -hmm. right? So I actually had one person in this fellowship that I was attending, tell me that I should wait for her to come out of rehab um, and continue working with her because she would need, and I quote you this person's words, other alcoholics to work with. Um, So like she would need to work with me and so I should wait with her. And I just think that was like, I didn't know what to think of this because I I was just trying to do everything right at the time. Mm -hmm. And so a few months later, I rinsed and repeated. I got another woman sponsor who I thought would be a guru because she had so many women around her and she talked like a guru in meetings. And I thought this woman will show me how to recover really properly, Mm -hmm. properly, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I told her everything. And then she also disappeared because she had so many sponsees. She could never, she had like 30 sponsees. She could never keep up with all of them. So she fired them all. That's way they call it firing she fired everyone and then on the slide she took some of them back and oh this hurt gosh. me like this hurt me a lot in pra- and in practical terms it left me without a sponsor but I had these two women out there floating around with with all my information mm-hmm. so I just think the reality of these fellowships is and this is controversial what I'm going to say but it is that people gossip yeah okay it runs absolutely counter to their traditions but it also absolutely happens because we're human and we're fallible and because the culture of these fellowships, as Liv has pointed out in previous episodes of your podcast, it's largely closed. Mm-hmm. And in, clo- in closed systems, people talk about each other. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's really important to share stories of trauma with people that you can absolutely trust, meaning a therapist or someone you believe will never share your story with someone else. So getting back to Amy, like why did Amy share that story with her sponsor? And in order, like I'm saying that story, this is a very powerful story of a, mm. a, a young woman who realized in sobriety, rem- had the rem- memory that she was, she was really seriously physically, uh, sexually abused when she was four years old. And so maybe she trusted her sponsor absolutely, which is okay. Some people luck out and they get a sponsor they can mm. absolutely trust not to judge them. And someone who, and it's not just about non-judgment, but it's someone who maybe has some experience with trauma and can actually help them or just witness what their 
what they're remembering, you know. So there are some therapists who belong to recovery fellowships, and maybe her sponsor was a therapist, I don't know. But there are a lot of sponsors who think they can be therapists, and they see their roles that way, and they're not qualified and can actually do harm. They, they think that they can fix their sponsees, mm. but it's a, it's a risk to talk about your serious trauma to someone who doesn't understand the phenomena of like emotional flooding and PTSD mm-hmm. and intrusive memories. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on the, so I'm, while I'm going back and forth here, and I'll just say again, on the other hand, Amy had never told anyone at all ever about that particular trauma. And she mm-hmm. had just remembered it and she needed somebody to witness her and revealing something like that to another human being can be ex- extremely and exquisitely freeing and healing. Like this happened to me mm-hmm. and another human being holding your hand and saying, yes, this happened to you and you're safe now and I care about you. Mm-hmm. And most of all, I'm just here with you witnessing. So I think that's the kind of experience she had and it can be super powerful. And it is the kind of experience that happens all the time in 12, 12 step fellowships. And it's really beautiful. Um, but it only happens if you're careful about who you tell your stuff to. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a follow-up question there? Yeah. Do you think we have the emotional intelligence to be careful about who we choose as a sponsor in early recovery? Well, I don't know. I really don't know. It depends on the individuals involved. I really don't know. Um, I have I have heard so many stories of people saying, oh, I came into recovery 25 years ago and I've been with my same sponsor for 25 years. And I, I personally can't imagine remaining with the same sponsor for 25 years. I can't be with the same therapist for 25 years. You know, like <laughs> the, the same, you do the same things over and over again and you get into a routine and I, I need to change things up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, we actually so, talked about that exact yeah. thing on another episode and I think there's definitely room for a sponsorship um, pod, you know, an entire episode just on well, An entire podcast. For sure. Um, but I yeah. think, you know, one of the things that I've seen is, yeah, that people have, you know, chosen sponsors that weren't a good fit. They've um, at times, and it's, you know, it's not to be, it's not to blame the person who chose that person. They just don't know what to expect or, you know, how, right. how to go about choosing one, or maybe they're limited in their options. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important is to even just highlight, like you have done here, that, you know, there are risks involved. And so, you know, kind of being aware that that, you know, it, you don't know for sure how that person will respond and um, maybe doing some self-care around that, whether mm-hmm. the person responded in a good way or, or in a way that felt good to you or a way that didn't feel good to you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But also having a realistic expectation in this situation, you know, like I, I, you know, I pose that question because I didn't have the emotional intelligence in early recovery. I didn't know what boundaries were. I didn't know that you can't just like dump all of this emotional material on somebody that isn't necessarily trained to be able to help you process that stuff mm-hmm. you know and because people have become so distorted in their understanding of the steps and have have like you alluded to earlier you know they've stepped into these roles that aren't necessarily there mm-hmm. yeah Ugh, so much so much that we could go into here um I do want to quickly I'm, I'm not just I, I'd like to just get back to Liv's point about the 10th step. I'm not sure what you were. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's touch on that briefly. And then we, yeah. we have even more questions okay. we want to dive into. Okay, good. Yeah. So my, my question there is, you know, if you're in a, in a sponsor sponsee relationship and you approach step 10 and 
you know, somebody, let's say a sponsor has a, a little bit of a distorted perception of or understanding of that harmful relationship and you actually could end up having to make some kind of amends to the person that harmed you. Mm. That that was where my question was leading, you know. So, for example, I've ended up making amends to exes that I had no further contact with, you know, for years. You mm. know, there was no point in me contacting them and apologising for my behaviour. A more appropriate amends might have been, you know, don't don't be harmful in relationships yeah, or try right. not to, right? Right, right. Um, so my, my question is just one of, of caution, really, you know, what, what kind of, um, safeguards could you build in around step 10 when it involves trauma? Well, I think that the number one safeguard is if you have trauma, if you have serious trauma, like, like the way Amy did, or even, even not as serious as that, um, cause most people don't have trauma that's, that's that serious. I don't think, um, <clears throat> um, just make sure that you get a practitioner who can help you. Um, and, and if you can find a practitioner who's familiar with recovery and there are more and more of them out there who mm. are familiar with, um, recovery, um, different med- modalities of recovery and just, just what goes on for people in, inside recovery from substances. But I also think, and I, I want to know what you guys think about this. I think that early in my recovery, at least, and I've heard this, like I heard this from Amy herself and from other people, once we start paying attention to that to, to our own wellness, which is what you said in a previous episode, you know, recovery is simply attuning to yourself to your own wellness mm-hmm. with discipline and care and regularity. When we do that, our, our intuitive capacity grows. Yeah. And, and, and I, and then I have a gut feeling like, wow, the sponsor is asking me to make amends to somebody that I haven't talked to in 10 years. I don't think that's right. Yes. Like, let me check this out with myself. Let me check this out with my practitioner. Yes. You know, and yeah, so that's the kind of thing that I think you can pay attention to. That's amazing. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what you just said about um, recovery is attuning to your own wellness. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so we want to dive a little bit into, um, you know, whether or what your thoughts are on how trauma affects our relationship with our body and our ability to enjoy pleasure. Because we really want to start talking about the pleasure part of it. Yeah, sure. So... Before we start talking about the pleasure part of it, I just want to um, I just want to say that I gather that you guys have like an interest in this trauma aspect, which mm-hmm. is really important because mm-hmm. a lot of recovery modalities don't, you know, like traditional recovery modalities don't really pay attention to this. So let me mention mm-hmm. that this kind of information is really important for women, especially. Mm-hmm. Not that it, trauma doesn't affect men, but it, it affects women disproportionately. So it's hard to get really reliable numbers, and some of them are old, but you know, there was a 2012 study that reported, um, that found that one third of people in treatment for alcohol use reported childhood physical abuse and one fourth reported childhood sexual abuse. So that's all, that's women and men. Mm -hmm. But you guys have talked about the ACE study. The ACE study talks about, um, how rampant, um, trauma is in, in the genesis of substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. And then Stephanie Covington, who wrote The Courage to Heal, which is one of the landmark books um, for women healing from um, sexual trauma, um, did some of the first research on women um, and addiction and trauma and said that about three quarters of us in recovery have had sexual abuse and one half have experienced physical abuse. Um, um, So this is what happens. Like girls who have trauma history start drinking. 
smoking mm-hmm. weed or using other drugs when they're 15, 16, 17, about the same time that they have start having sex. So pleasure becomes intertwi- intertwined with like use, drug use. Mm-hmm. And when you take the drug use away, um, we're left with the tra- we're left with like the abuse or trauma histories and nothing to buffer ourselves between, you know, buffer against that. Um, and we're also like I think um, we also experience like this um, this huge um, surge in libido depending on which drug mm-hmm. you're recovering from. You know, like if you if you quit opioids, um, your your libido can really surge. If you quit drugs that fool with your dopamine and GABA receptors, then it takes a little bit longer, like um, stimulants especially, but also alcohol and benzos. If you take those, it, it can it can take a little bit longer for your sexual response to recover. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I don't know what you found, um, but that's, that's what the research shows. Um, so this is all general in general, and your mileage might vary depending on what kind of drugs you were taking and how much and how, and so on. I took fentanyl for three and a half years. Before that, I took morphine and other drugs for two years. And after the first rush of increased libido, it, it kind of plummeted. And I had, um, it, and it was hard for me to get like feel much of anything besides tired and depressed in my body. So I had to, first of all, gain patience mm-hmm. and realize that time was going to do part of the work. And then I had to start feeding my body good food and moving it so that I could help it do that work of recovering. And so that's what my book, Recover- The Recovering Body, is all about. Um, but one thing, you asked about pleasure. Um, and this goes to also the question, I think you you were going to ask about sex addiction. But mm. um, one thing I heard a lot while interviewing sources for the book um, about sex and recovery was the concern that people would get addicted to their own orgasms. Like there was wow. this fear of our own organic pleasure. Mm -hmm. And if you're out there thinking that your sexual response is really strong in early recovery and you feel attracted to so many different people that you never would have looked at before, like when I was taking opioids every day, like I couldn't even see men. And when I stopped taking them, suddenly the world was full of men. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was hard to go to my son's soccer games sometimes because all the dads were there, but you're afraid to approach them because you don't want to get, you know, you're afraid to approach the people that you're attracted to because you don't want to get addicted to sex. Right. And you're afraid to use your new silicone vibe in the tub with lots of body wash, which is like my favorite way to use my waterproof silicone vibe, <laughs> because you think you might get addicted to your own orgasms. Right. And then you need to read my book, Sex and Recovery, and find out whether this is really true, because I interview several people that talk about, you know, um, are like whether we can be addicted to our own pleasure and what that what that question really means. Right. And and I and I think there's this um there's this kind of pattern in in 12 step recovery where you know you first uh find recovery from from substances and then people are very quick to notice other things come up. All right, we're going to take a pause here so that we can hear from our awesome sponsors. The Alana Club of Portland is proud to sponsor the Breaking Free podcast. Your recovery, your way, is at the heart of our approach to recovery support services. As the largest and most diversely programmed non-clinical recovery support center in the United States, we've been proudly breaking barriers and forging new pathways for years to ensure everyone has a home in recovery. From peer mentoring to recovery CrossFit, from trauma-informed yoga to mindfulness training, the Alano Club of Portland has a recovery pathway that's right for you. 
Here at Unity Recovery, we believe recovery should be the expectation, not the exception. Whether you find support with mutual aid, harm reduction, medication, or yoga, your recovery is beautiful and worth celebrating. Learn more and become part of the recovery movement at unityrecovery.org. And we're back. So I think what's really interesting is is that we hear there is this, um, you know, increased libido or increased desire for anything, really. And it's labeled as an addiction. So, you know, I have a number of friends that come in and, um, you know, they, they then start going to, to Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous or yeah. Overeaters Anonymous or, you know, any other A. It becomes like an alphabet soup. Um, <laughs> you know, right. what, what do you think about that? Do you think it's an addiction or do you think it's, like you said, you know, the, the, the changes in brain chemistry and... Yeah, that you're well, just having an increased desire for right. sex because you can you're because of the chemistry changes and because you're not having that kind of dampening of it by the substances. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have seen people who get sober and then, and then their, their sexual responses are so intense that they, for example, I interviewed one guy in his twenties who quit using heroin and in early recovery, he would have sex with three different women every day. Yeah. Um, and he would also have spontaneous orgasms with no stimulation. And I believed him because in my early recovery from fentanyl, I could have upwards of six orgasms at a time, you know? Um, yeah. Um, so, and that can to, in a culture, in a larger culture, like in a subculture, like a 12 step fellowship, that's part of this larger culture that doesn't talk about sex at all and thinks sex is actually like secretly thinks sex is actually sinful, but will actually pay all the time for porn online. Okay. That's the, that's the culture that we're in. This kind of, this kind of rampant sexual response can, can feel, can seem like sex addiction. It can, it can feel very threatening to people Mm. because they don't have language to talk about it because they, they, maybe they've never masturbated. Maybe they don't know how their bodies feel. Maybe they don't even live in their bodies. I mean, I've, I've seen lots of people in the rooms who I think don't even live in their bodies. Mm. Like recovery can become an intellectual and spiritual exercise and not a, not an actual physical exercise. Mm. Um, so I think that, I think that the, the sort of jumping to call this sex addiction, um, is like, I mean, sex addiction isn't even a diagnosis, like, um, because there's little evidence that, you know, sex, actual sex can be an addiction. Mm. Um, but I think certainly that like people, people will like, once you take one substance or behavior away, people will sort of fill that space with another substance or behavior. And, Mm. um, and it could become like a situation of whack-a-mole. I I think that's, I think that's where we get into for me, like, that's where I try I start working toward my imperfection. You know, like I, I can't, I can't, I can't become totally clean and pure. Um, you know, that's not what my recovery is about. My recovery is actually about now for me right now, it might be about something else tomorrow, but for me right now, it's about moving toward my imperfection, not just accepting my imperfection, but trying to be imperfect. I think too that, um, you know, we become, if, if we're in a, in a program where we are looking at behaviors becoming out of hand and we're in a process of inventory every day, you know, there's this tendency to criticize things that are coming up for us, certain behaviors or desires or, 
or whatever and you know in a way kind of look at them as as things that we need to control when actually you know and we talk a lot about this in this podcast is you know sometimes that's our intuition and our body's way of saying this is what I need yeah yeah sometimes sometimes you just need to go in some other direction that you haven't that hasn't been accessible to you I think that people come in don't you think that people come into recovery with a lot of fear and shame yeah um so and they I mean I personally came into recovery and a lot of I've known a lot of people who have who've just wanted someone else to tell them what to do yeah and traditional recovery fellowships are built around that idea that if you just do what we tell you then you'll then everything will be okay yeah um and at some point, for some of us, like intuition takes over and we, we need to be guided by not just, you know, our posse of people, but, but what is happening internally. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's, yeah, we're all about really being the, um, you know, being autonomous in mm-hmm. our recovery and really being the, um, the person who allows ourselves to be directed, you know, self-directed and really, um, have that sense of agency and regaining that. And so that's mm. a big part, I think, of why we both chose to leave 12 step. But, um, but like you said, there's, you know, there's also community there's, you know, there is direction there. There's a lot of things that I think people appreciate about it, but there, there's one, you probably get this question a lot, but there's this one kind of thing that comes up a lot around sex is that one year rule. And so <laughs> do you want to briefly share it with us? Like what you, how you feel about it or what your thoughts are on it? So I wrote a whole chapter about the infamous one year rule. It's called <laughs> yeah. the infamous one year rule. <laughs> um, like, I think you should buy the book if you want to know what I, I think, think about this rule, but I think, several, I think several things about it. Um, but let me point out that this rule is interpreted differently in different regions of the world and in different subcultures. Okay. So mm. in my region, um, it's no sex for a year, but only if you're single. Okay. Mm. So if you're married, which I was at the time I came into the fellowship, you're on your own to figure out the sex thing. Like nobody ever said, here's what you should do about the sex thing. It's basically like just, just see, see what happens. And it, it, and it was very, very hard because my whole sexual landscape changed when I quit using opioids. And, and that meant my whole marriage changed and eventually my marriage ended. Um, and in other parts of the world, it's no new relationships for a year. So I would say to subjects in those parts of the world, what about no sex for a year? And they were like, I never heard that. It's like no new relationships. Mm-hmm. And then in the gay community, for example, like, um, and not that, not that the gay community is monolithic across the country, but one gay guy told me that he had been advised that having sex in the first year was good because he was told, and I quote, you can't get drunk with a dick in your mouth. So I'm going to have to put an explicit warning on this. Talk talk about a replacement, right? You can't get drunk with a dick in your mouth. It can be healthy for people to explore different kinds of pleasure, but I think Um, I think in general, the one year rule, like I think in general, it's arbitrary and it discourages people from having intuition about their own timeline. But I also think that it can be really good to spend some time um, exploring your sexuality in some way. No one will ever tell you how to do that or give you advice. And I don't think that's appropriate. I think I think it's important. Like that's why I share so many different stories in this book so you can get ideas of how different people did it. Um, yeah, the book is I excellent, think... by the way, oh, great. you Thank guys you. definitely listeners, please check it out. We really, um, we'll put it, we'll definitely put a link in the show notes 
And um, actually, you know, it's so funny about this topic. I was talking to my husband this morning about it, and we actually met in early recovery, um, but we both, you know, had other things going on. I think we had a brief fling, and, you know, and then we kind of dated off and on, and one day he moved in. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we were talking about this 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 morning, and, you know, we don't know each other's everything, but we know a lot about each other. And my sponsor, I was actually with my daughter's father at the time. And so she said, you know, at some point, you know, you should, you're going to spend a year uh, celibate. It's important. And I was like, "Mm, we'll see. And of course, he and I didn't last. And, you know, she could see the writing on the wall there. But, um, but it was, you know, something I I appreciated the experience. But, um, but yeah, I think I would have also appreciated having that autonomy and having someone encourage me to have, you know, use my own discernment. Um, but my husband said, oh, no, it's no sex in, in um, the first year. And so it was interesting. I was like, oh, is it, are we telling women, or no, it's no relationships. And so are we telling women no sex and men no relationships? I uh, don't know. That's a, that's a really interesting idea. I hadn't thought of whether there's a gender discrepancy there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I went really to the same meetings. Yeah, we went to the same meetings. So wow. I mean, I was like, oh. And, and how screwed up is that? If women are being told no sex and men are being told no relationships, then how, yeah. how's that going to work? Like if you're with someone, then they're going to be trying to go after sex with women who are trying, you know, right. <laughs> and saying they don't want a relationship and the women are going to be <laughs> trying to not have sex. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, yeah. So an interesting cultural question, I think. Now we can mm, all. That's super gendered. interesting. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a really great idea for a story, Liv. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I'm going to have to write an article. Yeah, I All mean, right. recovery is so, you know, heteronormative and and pretty sexist, too. Um, yeah, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write an article on that. Um, All right. So, unfortunately, we do have to get wrap this up, but we would just love to thank you so much, Jennifer, for being on and, um, you know, encourage everyone to check out the books. Like I said, I've been reading it and really enjoying it, and it's opened up some really good questions for me. And it's also really um, caused me to start thinking about how am I showing up for other people in recovery, and what am I? Am I kind of you know saying the same things? Like, am I just mm-hmm. regurgitating this and not empowering them or encouraging them to um, be self-directed in this area and explore it and, and embrace that part of themselves? That makes me so happy to hear that those things are coming up for you. Thank you. Yay. And thank, thank you so much for, for asking these questions and for being such an inquisitive mind. I really love that about you. Um, you know, I, I think there's this, we should probably have a, another episode on pleasure as a whole because mm. I think it's kind of the forbidden fruit of recovery, right? I agree. I totally agree. I mm. totally agree. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have you back on. <laughs> um, oh, love that. Let's do it. Thank you yeah. so much. We're going to link to your books in the show notes too. All right. Okay. Thank any, you. Any last thoughts, Jennifer? No, I just, the last thought I guess would be um, that so much of these questions come from the fact that we don't talk Um, to children about sexuality Mm -hmm. and if I could say one thing that I mean I really believe I came away from writing this book thinking that if we could find ways to talk or practice ways of talking about sexuality with our children we could probably cut substance use disorder rates in like half because so many people begin using substances um, um, in disordered ways in their adolescence because they don't know how to approach their sexuality so it's so important. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Breaking Free Podcast, your recovery, your way. We want to hear from you. Email us at hello at breakingfreerecovery.com or join our Facebook group, Breaking Free Community. Tell us what Breaking Free means to you.